The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. What do you do to celebrate an accomplishment? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I usually drink, okay, in June. After the school year is over, I have a ritual where I go up with a group of about 12 guys that I was in college with. We go up to Whistler, Canada for a weekend of golf and fellowship, and and it really is a time for us to connect and for us to to hang out, and in addition to it, uh, we have a, a couple of beers. That isn't to say that there's only one time a year that I do that. Uh, let's say um, every Thursday night. Thursday is my Friday. Often, I will go home and have a, a cocktail or a glass of red wine with my lovely wife. And it's a chance where it's not that we're merely drinking together, but it's a chance for us to kind of get caught up and to uh, see how each other are doing, to, to debrief our week uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. Uh, it, my son has noticed this, my four-year-old, one of the gingers that you saw in the, in the video there. It is dope to have a family of ginger kiddos, I will say that much, but probably not as dope as Jim's Big Weekend. Um, but Carson, when, when on those Thursday nights when he sees me pouring that glass of red wine, he's like, ooh, daddy juice. I'm like, that's right. That's juice you can't have. So I share all that to, to just say that like many of you, I drink. Now, in our culture, the production and the consumption of alcohol is legal, and no doubt it is socially acceptable. And to boot, it is big business. For any of you that are sports fans during March Madness or perhaps the opening of baseball season as we have experienced this last week, you have seen your share of advertisements for alcohol. Perhaps you've seen advertisements like the one uh, that I want to show you from our good friends at Miller 64. Take a look at this. We run in the city, we run in the park. We run past the dog with that really weird bark. We run when it's windy, it really gets old. Miller 64 is a reward for the bold. We go to the gym for a while, we stay. We slide on the treadmill to wipe it away. I wanted to cry, but no tears today. A cold 64 will make it okay. To Miller 64, to Miller 64. So here's the good Miller who cut out the bill. Cheers to Miller 64. What's a commercial like that trying to sell you? It's trying to sell you on a lot more than beer, isn't it? It's trying to sell you on a a lifestyle, something that's really dynamic and people are are running. I love that, you know, there's there's the guy who's going to get his dumbbells. The pretty girl walks by and he quickly grabs the heavier ones, you know. You know, the line, Miller 64 will make it okay. Uh, often they're, they're selling you something that is going to do just that, right? Make it okay. Um, in 2011, alcohol producers spent nearly $58 billion on advertising. In 2011, the population of the United States was somewhere between 311 and 312 million. So that means that those companies spent about $186 per person in this country to get you to drink their product. That's everybody, okay? So that means they spent $186 on my two kids to try and get them to drink the product. 
Okay, here's, what, here's where this gets interesting, uh, even more interesting to me. Uh, of course, one of these companies' uh, primary demographics would be college students. A study out of Harvard showed that 84% of all college students consume alcohol, including 82% of all students under the age of 21. This study suggested that of the students that drink, the average amount of money spent on alcohol in any given year was about $550 annually. You know, now I know there's probably a few girls sitting in the audience going, mm, I've never paid for a drink in my life. Well, <laughs> somebody is paying for it, okay? It averages out to be 550 okay? Well, here's, here's again where this gets even more interesting, okay? Uh, when this study pointed out that the average student debt at the end of an undergraduate career is right around $20,000, which means that just short of 10% of student debt, in effect, goes to finance alcohol consumption. Okay, perhaps you're connecting this right there, that when it comes to alcohol, there seems to be, in this case, a bit of a domino effect. And as many of us in this room know and perhaps have experienced, that domino effect goes beyond much more than finances. In the buzz of our wider culture, we see alcohol's prominence as well. A few years ago, rapper Asher Roth <laughs> became famous almost overnight with a song called I Love College, where he more or less just described the college party scene. That party last night was totally crazy. I wish we taped it. I danced my butt off. I had this one. But anyway, you guys get the point. What am I getting at here? We live in a drinking culture. It is socially acceptable, and even I, as a pastor, can get up in front of you, tell you I drink, and I don't have any fear that, I, that somehow my job is in jeopardy or that I might be outside of God's love and grace because of that fact. So why are we talking about this? Well, for those of you that were here last week, you heard Janie Stewart get us, give us a great talk and get us started in a series that we're calling Stronger Opinions, Stronger Faith. In this series, we are in a conversation with the Bible about things that Christians can tend to have strong opinions, if not convictions about, but they are not necessarily the essentials in the faith. We call these disputable matters. Essentials of the faith would be a line such as this. Jesus Christ is Lord, and in his name our sins are forgiven. Okay, that is a line that any Christian, Protestant or Catholic, Anglican or Orthodox, nobody is going to disagree about the merit of that statement. But in, in other things, for example, what we're going to talk about tonight, drinking, there can be a wide range of opinions and even issues that come out of that that can be very divisive within the Christian community. So in this series, we're going to be talking about those things. And tonight, we'll talk about drinking. And before I continue, I want to point out that the last thing that we're trying to do here is be judgy or judgmental. And so if over the course of this evening or even other talks in the series, if there's anything that offends you, please know that the, the point is for us to get conversations started. 
Don't just walk out of here angry because we said something. I invite, invite you to come and talk to me, others on staff, or even some of your peers about what was it that that dude was saying up front. Uh, our goal is not to get you to believe the same thing I believe. It's to get you to wrestle with what are the things that are present in, present in Scripture, that are, are present in our faith, and, and how do we make sense of some of these things, okay? So the invitation is to wrestle that you would have your own convictions around these things. Don't just take my word for it. But we are going to continue to have a conversation with the Bible. As you can tell, there's a lot of layers to this, and it's really complicated, so we better pray before we get started. Lord, help us out. Help us to, uh, to know you more. That's why we came. Uh, we want to know each other more. Uh, we want to we we be real. Um, so, Lord, as we uh, spend a little bit of time in your word, as we gather, uh, be real to us. Um, open our hearts and minds to receive whatever it is that you have for us in this evening. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now, we may live in a drinking culture, as I pointed out a little bit earlier, but we are not alone in that fact. Uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, there is a story of a traditional Jewish, Jewish wedding. And weddings uh, in both Old and New Testament times were not the, the kind of afternoon and evening affair that we're used to today. They were more like wedding festivals, often taking uh, the better part of a week where two families would come together uh, and, and share, and no doubt drinking was part of those families' celebration. Well, the Gospel of John chapter 2 shows us at the end of one of these weddings, this festival, Jesus actually turns water into wine, okay, at the end. Our Lord Jesus Christ turns water into wine just to keep the party going, and perhaps more importantly, to keep a family uh, from the incredible sense of shame that would have uh, been attached to them had they run out of wine during a wedding. That would have been the worst thing that, that you could do as a host would be to, to run out of wine. The rest of their lives, they would have walked down the street going, oh, that was the wedding where they ran out of wine. <laughs> okay? So Jesus not only was keeping the party going, he was sparing a couple uh, from shame. Well, in the old, uh, and then of course, uh, Jesus a little bit later on, uh, the, the cup of the new covenant that he would have presented to the disciples, of course, would have had wine um, in it. The Old Testament is no different. We look at the Proverbs, for example, and there are a couple of notable quips that scratch at the ethics of alcohol. Most notably, in my opinion, is uh, saying 16 from a list of sayings in Proverbs 23. It says this. It says, listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your mind in the way. Do not, be, or do not join those who drink too much wine. I love that the NRSV right here says, do not be among the wine bibblers. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, like a, that's like a bad name to call your grandparents or your, or your, your dad or something. <laughs> you wine bibbler. Okay. Um, or, or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Now, Proverbs was a very, is a very practical book giving practical advice, and it did so to people in the day as well. Now, what we see here in, in what I'm trying to, to build for you is that in both Old and New Testament, uh, in their cultures, drinking alcohol was an accepted part of the culture. 
But as you saw here in the Proverbs, there are very stern, very clear warnings about alcohol and in particularly, in particular, overindulgence. Now, while it is similarly accepted in our culture, um, there are plenty of Christian communities that choose to not drink. Many contemporary Baptist uh, church communities uh, do not allow members to drink alcohol. Many Christian colleges also uh, have uh, require their students and faculty to abstain from alcohol. I know when I was uh, a student, uh, students at Seattle Pacific University had to sign uh, a covenant that said they would not drink not only on campus, but off campus as well. Even if you were 21, if you were enrolled as a student, you were signing an honor code that said, I wouldn't drink. Apparently, I've been told they've changed that, that part of the covenant. Is that true? Yeah, that now it's something like you can't return to campus drunk, and certainly you can't drink on campus at, at SPU. Um, but to even say that, that it's changed. But a lot of Christian colleges, um, that's not uh, allowed. Uh, some prominent voices in Christianity, names that some of you may be familiar with, like Billy Graham, John Piper, John MacArthur, all of them choose to abstain uh, entirely from alcohol. And the reasons that they have for that are very compelling and largely rooted in the text that Janie read for us last week, Romans 14. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you, if you're going to, if, if you're going to be con continuing to join us this spring, you really have to read that passage uh, because it's really the text that I'm working from tonight as well and we'll be working with this in, entire quarter that says that there are these things such as disputable matters, but we have to deal with them with love at the center, with love as the central ethic. Uh, and that's exactly what we're trying to do right now. So many of these communities and colleges that condemn alcohol, they do so because of what it can so quickly lead to, right? This is the domino effect that I was trying to illustrate a little bit earlier. The premise is this, that nothing good comes out of this, so why do we do it? Now, even for those that choose to abstain, for them, it's never what we call a salvation issue. They're not saying that if you do drink, that you are somehow outside of God's love and grace and forgiveness. Um, they're not even saying that if you get drunk, then you disqualify yourself from getting into heaven. They're not saying that. Uh, they are saying that there are ethics around, and practically, this doesn't work, so we have to be careful about that. Now, this is where things can get a bit more tricky for those of us that, that follow Jesus Christ, who are seeking Jesus, who might even call ourselves Christian, and for people like me that have the conviction that it's okay to drink. But the Bible isn't as ambiguous about drunkenness. Rather, drunkenness is strongly condemned um, as it is in the Proverbs. First, we, we look at somebody like the Apostle Paul, who repeatedly uh, warns the early church to stay away from alcohol. Why would Paul do this? Uh, in the early church, he was encouraging these communities to somehow make themselves a little bit different than the rest of the culture. 
So he tells people to not get drunk, to not overindulge in wine. The Lord we serve is a little different, and so our response is going to be a little bit different. Jesus himself, uh, in, in Luke chapter 12, uh, it makes it clear that drunkenness um, is something to be condemned. And really what he, he drives at is something that's a little bit more positive. He's trying to, to get us to be watchful. And that's really what the word sober is connected to. That you have, that there's an awareness, an ability to see clearly. Um, in, at the end of these passages um, where Jesus is teaching, the Lord answers Peter in verse 42. He says, who then is the faithful wise manager? Whom? The managed master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food um, allowance at the proper time. Um, skipping down to 45. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then that servant begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat, drink, and get drunk. In this teaching... Jesus is clearly associating drunkenness, not being sober, with things like beating other servants, okay? What I'm driving at here is that there is no place in Scripture where drunkenness is spoken of positively. We don't have to like that, but we have to deal with it. That's what the Bible says about it. So it gets this, that much more complicated when the Apostle Paul then, one chapter earlier in Romans 13, gives us the famous laws of the land passage, where he basically says we have to submit to the authorities and to the laws of the land. What does that mean for us? It means for those of us that live here in the United States of America who are under 21 years old, means that there's a law against drinking and that those of us who follow Christ are asked to obey that law. There's a lot of layers at work here. So let me see if I can recap them really quick. First, like our ancient brothers and sisters in Jewish culture and in the early church, alcohol was an accepted part of the culture. Second, while drinking is kind of a disputable matter, a gray area, drunkenness is not. It's never something spoke positively of. And more clearly, Jesus notes that those who follow him are to be sober. That is ready, alert, um, willing to participate in whatever God is doing at any given moment. Third, as followers of Christ... Scripture makes the case that if we are able to take a, if we are going to take a relationship with God seriously, we have to take the laws of the land seriously as well. That's part of what it means to be a kingdom citizen as well, is to be a good citizen here on earth. Now, I had a moment in my own life when all of these things came to a head. It was my sophomore year here at the University of Washington. It was spring break. I was headed out on a road trip with a group of friends, and our destination was Arizona, the Valley of the Sun, to go watch some spring training baseball and, to be totally honest, 
uh, to drink a little bit of beer as well. Now, I was one of these guys that never drank uh, in high school. And so coming to college, drinking was a new ex- ex- uh, experiment for me. I decided to try out casual drinking at the beginning of my freshman year. And really, by the end of that year, my drinking uh, and, and really getting drunk had ramped up uh, considerably. I had secured a fake ID that made it easy for me uh, to go out with some of the older guys uh, in my house to go out uh, to bars and go downtown. And I was well equipped with this fake ID as we set out for the Valley of the Sun. And one of the things I remember about that trip is that we're in the back of this, uh, this van, two of my buddies, and we, we pointed south on I-5. And we were, oh, I, I suppose, all the way to about the Kingdom, which was a building downtown where we used to play sports events and stuff. And me and my bu- uh, one of my buddies were in the back, cracking beers, drinking, while our other buddies were up front driving, cruising down I-5. Time to get spring break started a little bit earlier. Well, in Arizona, we wanted to get into this big St. Patrick's Day party right next to Arizona State University on Mill Avenue, for any of those that might be familiar with Tempe. And we're bouncing into this place. I hand over my fake ID, and the bouncer kind of stops looks at this Washington ID, looks at me, looks back at the ID. I'm beginning to think that this may not work as smoothly as it does back at the Ram in Seattle. And the guy says, "Uh, well, your eyes aren't brown. And I'm like, but my hair is. (laughs) He didn't find it as amusing as I did. You're not 5'8". And you definitely don't weigh 180. And I was like, come on, that new program worked pretty well, don't you think? Okay. Clearly, I'm busted. Yet I was still in all of my 20-year-old eloquence smart enough to say, okay, okay, I know I'm not going to get in here, but will you just give me the ID back? And he says, dude, you are lucky I don't call the police. Get out of here. Well, that, needless to say, changed the dynamic of our trip. Uh, On the way home, we had planned to drive through Vegas and do the things that you do in Vegas if you have a fake ID. Uh, We were foiled on that. We were going to drink our way through various spring training venues, and that wasn't going to happen. And for a while, we were desperately trying to figure out the workaround, and I was leading that charge. But after a while, it was exhausting. And finally, I just decided to make the commitment to not drink until my 21st birthday, and that was still a good eight months out. You see, so it was because of an encounter I had with the laws of the land that I was confronted with a decision. And that decision was to stop drinking altogether because for me at that time, it was illegal. And at that point, stopping drinking no surprise here, also solved the problem with regular drunkenness. Now, this was at the same time that I was beginning to ask some of the bigger questions of faith. Questions like, if if I'm going to say I believe this whole Jesus thing, if the Bible is really telling me the truth, then what does that mean for my life? Well, one of the things that I discovered is that it meant that I was going to have to relinquish one habit for another. And this was scary. Would I still have a social life? 
Would the friends that I drink with still like me? Would girls be interested in me? And I did not know the answer to those questions. But again, it proved to be a moment where I needed to see if the God of the Bible was true. And if he was, I would be okay drinking, with not drinking for a few months. Even if the answer to all those questions was no, I decided and decided to even try out if the Jesus Christ of Scripture would be enough. Well, no doubt my social life was impacted. I went through a time of feeling like my life wasn't nearly as exciting as it was when I was, you know, getting schnockered all the time. Is that even a word? <laughs> Katie tried to coach me in some of the vernacular that is out there now, and, and I just forgot what it, what it was. <laughs> that said, my social life took on a different dynamic. I found actually that my friendships grew. I started receiving more responsibility at the job that I was working, and the girls were just as disinterested in me as they had always been. <laughs> what also followed was an incredible time of spiritual growth for me. It was a season where I began to discover that I was, in fact, able to live into a different vision than, than the one that I had had of myself for so long. That God's work in my life was more than I had given God credit for. While I can't put my finger on necessarily why that happened, if it was the extra time, if it was fewer hangovers or fewer hookups, whatever the case, it was a time where I grew in both my relationship with God and my relationship with others. So in a series that we're doing on disputable matters, as Janie said last week, I'm not up here to merely tell you what you should think about drinking or even to force you into convictions about drunkenness. In fact, what I'm way more convicted of, based on the warnings of Scripture, on the story of my own life and what I observe out of you and from the stories that I hear you tell in my office, is that often the fierce protection of one's desire to drink and your right to party are harming your relationship with God. It's harming your relationship with your neighbors, your friends. And in many cases, it's harming your relationship with yourself, how you view yourself. So for me, the conviction that I'm most interested in is what it means for you to love and pursue God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to do the same for your friends and for yourself. It's the conviction that we stop living for God only when it's convenient. Lord, I'll be a good Christian as long as it doesn't get in the way of my vibrant social life. So I want to bring three questions to the fore. 
And those questions are questions around your habits, around drinking, and how they might be impacting your relationship with God, your friends, and yourself. First, how are your habits around drinking impacting your relationship with God? Now, I recognize that based on the stats that I read earlier, that there's at least 20% of you in here that are going, this doesn't apply to me. Um, But the stats say that more than 8 out of 10 of you, it does apply. And so um, bear with me here, even if this is not for you tonight. Um, Stats say it really is for all of us. How are your habits uh, around drinking impacting your relationship with God? One of the most prominent warnings of the Old Testament is the warning against idolatry. College culture often makes idol and alcohol alcohol an idol when we make it the guest of honor. What am I talking about? We saw it a little bit in the beer commercial. To Miller 64. Okay, no one else is being celebrated. What's being celebrated is the stuff itself. So when we make alcohol the guest of honor, what it means is that we arrive in some situation, uh, most, most of the time a social situation, and we go and greet the guest of honor. The first thing we do is greet the guest of honor. We get enough of the guest of honor so that that guest of honor might, we think, empower us to go be, uh, you know, kind of grease the skids a little bit, help us to be a little bit more social, help us to loosen up, empower us to be something in that environment. So the question is, why do you drink? Do you do it to fit in? Do you do do it to loosen up and somehow become someone else that is only capable of being social and funny after you've had a few? If the answer to those questions is yes, yes, You need to think about if you're making alcohol the guest of honor and thus an idol. Alcohol is the guest of honor when booze is the point, when we're drinking to get drunk, where we are turning to alcohol to somehow empower us to be something that we don't trust God to empower us with. We think alcohol will make us that thing we want to be and don't trust God to do that. In essence, when we overindulge, when we get drunk, we're saying, I don't care that God is present and I'm making myself oblivious to the presence of God and likely anything or anyone else for that matter. Listen, God is the one that has given us the means to make alcohol given us the materials, the the ingredients that we need. And we can show God our gratitude in that by not drinking too much of it and instead honoring God by remaining alert and grateful. We do this by not making alcohol the guest of honor. For it is God that is able to make us more uniquely and fully us. God is able to make you more uniquely and fully you than alcohol is able to do. Second, how are your habits around drinking impacting your relationship with your friends? Uh, To a friend, have you ever used the excuse, "Uh, hey, I'm really sorry about what happened there, but I was drunk. 
Perhaps you woke up with someone the next morning and now it's awkward <laughs> and you feel bad if you remember what happened. And we just blame it on the uh, 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 alcohol, okay? Too often, friends, we use alcohol as an excuse to not take responsibility for the ways that, that we can harm other people, for the ways that we can harm ourselves physically, mentally, uh, perhaps even spiritually. I, honestly, I'm tired of people not taking responsibility for the decisions that they make while they're drunk. There's a line with which you are no longer that, that funny guy or that crazy girl when you constantly overindulge. Actually, you become annoying, and it will drive your friends away. In our culture, particularly in college culture, we think that if we don't drink, we, we won't have a witness with, with uh, our friends who do drink, perhaps uh, believers and non-believers alike. I'm here to tell you that when it push comes to shove, people really don't care if you drink. What they care about is if you are interested. Your influence with people goes up when you are genuinely interested in what's going on in their lives, not if you party well with them. Are you paying attention to what brings them joy, what the pains are in their life, and engaging those in a meaningful way, not a stupid way? Finally, how are your habits around drinking impacting your relationship with yourself? No doubt that as I am up here talking about this right now, many of you are jumping right into shame. We start talking about this, and it's easy for you to start going, well, I drink, and I got drunk last night or last week, and so I guess I'm no good to God, and there's no place for me inside the church. That's shame. You see, shame pulls us away from God. But that shame cycle can stop. It stops when we confess, and even more beautifully, when we are forgiven. What we celebrated last Sunday on Easter Sunday is the fact that that is true, that God went the distance to make sure that we are all forgiven, drinking and drunkenness included. That's the truth sealed on Easter, that you are loved and forgiven. Our neighborhood outreach coordinator here, Annika Cook, talks about the shame cycle when she notes that so many great folks, often in the Greek system, will take themselves out of the game simply because their hangover is too bad and they can't make it to the next thing. But more often, the shame of missing, um, there's this shame of missing the mark. And so they say, I better not be in leadership. I better not go to church. Annika notes that often these are folks that have tons of potential in their lives to have a kingdom influence, but they write themselves off as unable because of the habits they are not proud of around drinking. I've heard stories of students who are, are drinking in front of other students who are not drinking, and they're apologizing, saying, oh gosh, I'm so sorry I'm drinking, that even in the moment, there is this sense of shame. I know the feeling of that shame. Even after I had given up drinking from that time when my fake ID got taken away till I was 21, after I was 21, I stubbed my toe and did so far more than once. 
And there was this sense of regret and remorse as I would do that. But there was this conviction that I was not going to allow that shame to take me out of the game. And instead, I stayed connected here to the community of faith at UPC that reminded me that, that God's forgiveness was bigger than me stubbing my toe. But my habits around drinking would be something that could keep me from realizing the depth of that love and forgiveness. And that's how our habits can impact the relationship that we have with ourselves. I needed to be in a community that was reminding me of the forgiveness and grace that God had and it proved way more faithful than the constant drunk fest. Friends, if your habits around drinking are causing you this shame, I'm here to tell you that you're forgiven and that God has something better for you. Way more than this talk, than this issue is about getting it right instead of getting it wrong, this is about being loved and being forgiven. Paul's point in Romans 14 is that our convictions and behaviors around those convictions are to be rooted in love. That the moment we realize this thing, our resolution is to actively love God and love each other. I'm glad that it was a friend that actively loved me in the middle of my sophomore year. Um, after one night of heavy drinking in that sophomore year, he decided to evaluate our behavior, and he did so in love, by writing me a letter that he left on my desk uh, that I read the next day. And I don't remember everything about that letter, but I do remember that it said, I think God has something better for us. Now, at the time, I'm not even sure that I knew what that meant. But more than a few hangovers, a confiscated ID, and a few toe stubs later, I can tell you that he was absolutely right. That God did have something better for me. That God did have something better for us. I think God's got something better for you. So often I hear students just dying for somebody to just be real with them. The beer commercial that we saw is so compelling because there's, there's a community element to it. People singing along and raising a, a glass. There's, there's dynamics to it. There's pleasure. There's beautiful people. But as we heard Denise and Joe say, it is in community. It was in a community where alcohol was not mediating that. That those on the, the Honduras trip, those on the DR trip, those that went to Malibu, experienced something that much more real. You see, alcohol's ability to do that is very limited to the point of deception. So as I wrap up, please do not hear me saying that what Jesus is out to do is make sure that you don't have any fun. No. Remember, this is the same Lord 
that changed water into wine. And just a few chapters later, he comes up and says, actually, the reason that I came is that you would have life and have it to the full. This isn't just an eschatological reality, something that happens after you die. That promise is for right now. The promise is that it can be yours. And it is yours. It's what Jesus came to do and has sealed for you. And so the conviction that I have, that I invite you to join in with me, is that we might live our lives as a loving response to a loving and forgiving God because it is there where we discover our real selves, where we discover real relationships in community, and where we discover the real God. Let's pray. Lord, help us out. Uh, do not let us walk out of here covered in shame, but rather cover us in grace uh, as we uh, go about all that you have called us to. Um, Lord, be real to us. Uh, help us to find uh, those relationships that we crave, the community that we want to be a part of. Lord, help us find you because we know that you have found us. Uh, Lord, for those of us that struggle with alcohol, help us. For those of us that are living with people who struggle with alcohol, give us the courage to respond in love. And Lord, give us wisdom and discernment on what we do, how we behave, the decisions that we make in the drinking culture that we live in. Lord, in all things, we just ask for your help. So Lord, be with us and help us out in Jesus' name. Amen.